This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Fantasy Footballers DFS Podcast with your hosts, Kyle Borgannoni and Matthew Betts. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Fantasy Footballers DFS Podcast in the summer. I'm your host, Kyle Borgannoni, and I'm joined with, oh wait, it's just me. It's one of those solo pods, solo mailbag pod you're going to get from me. Our boy Betts is thick in the things of fatherhood. He's about a week in. Those of you that just joined us or haven't seen on Twitter, Betts and his wife Monica, they just had two twin girls, Hadley and Layton. And uh, after texting with Betts the last couple of days, uh, he's gotten a little sleep. You guys know if you're parents out there, you understand what those first couple of weeks are like. It's survival. It is you saying, I have to now take care of this human being, and I don't think I'm up for it. But Betts, he's alive. Uh, I'm trying to give him some advice of what to do in the middle of the night that is not football related. It is just, dude, figure out things that are fun. And yes, with two, I have no idea what to do. But Betts will be back with us in a couple of weeks. The girls are healthy. Uh, and yeah, if you want to, you know, share any love with him on Twitter, you can do that at the fantasy PT. I'm at Kyle underscore Borg. If you want to follow me on Twitter, but this episode is going to be devoted to some questions that some of our listeners on our discord channel got to give as well as Twitter that are best ball related. I'll go over a couple of quick best ball structural things I'm seeing, but I wanted to jump in and talk about an insight that I've seen with a player that I, I feel like so far, I haven't talked about him very much in this podcast. Those of you that have been listening, you understand how bullish Betts and I are on Aaron Jones. He's become one of our favorite players to talk about this offseason, but now he's at the point where his ADP is a bit too high. So I wanted to give you a stat insight. This is something that Andy and I actually talked through this past week, and I think it's a piece of information that is pertinent for best ball because often when we make decisions on players – it feels like we have to make them in regards to not liking other players. So if we like Aaron Jones, does that mean I have to not like A.J. Dillon? All right, right now, A.J. Dillon is being drafted as the RB25 on underdog. So does that mean that if I'm really bullish on Aaron Jones, I just need to not have A.J. Dillon or vice versa if I like one of them? There is a scenario where both of these players are good for fantasy. There's also a scenario where at least one of these players are great for fantasy. 
with an injury. But I want to talk about just the floor case for A.J. Dillon. Andy and I looked at running back teammates that had 200-plus touches at the running back position over the last decade. This actually happened last year for these two. Aaron Jones had 223 touches. A.J. Dillon had 221. Jones finished at RB21, and A.J. Dillon finished right inside the RB2 territory at RB23. This has happened seven times over the last decade where running back teammates saw 200-plus touches each. Now, normally for fantasy, we don't like these situations because if they're both sharing the load, no one gets to break out. You know, Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon were in that category last year where they had the exact same number of carries, and it frustrated you for fantasy because you just wanted one of them to break through. But let me give you the floor case for running backs that fit this criteria. So that this has happened seven times. Uh, Reggie Bush, Joyk Bell, 2013 with the Lions, Jeremy Hill, Giovanni Bernard in 2014, Alvin Kamara, Mark Ingram in 2017, Eckler and Gordon in 2019, and then Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb in 2020, along with what happened last year. All of these running backs, all of them, in these uh, seven different teammate pairings, all of them finished in the top 24. So all of them were good and had a safe floor. But what's more important is that the second running back that was drafted in the pair outperformed their ADP every single time. In other words, if you find the running back that you think can get 200-plus touches, you likely will find a running back that can outperform their ADP. And that's not even talking about if Aaron Jones went down. So A.J. Dillon, I think right now, is somebody that I feel comfortable taking ahead of his ADP. Right, It's RB25. I don't mind taking him around RB21. And you're getting somebody that is going to be on the field a ton. The coaching staff's already talked about utilizing them both in different you know, play sets. But the upside is massive. This guy can catch the football, caught 34 of 37 targets last year, which was more than all of college combined at Boston College. And you know that he's going to be a beast in the goal, uh, goal line situation. They actually had the same number of goal line carries this past year, Aaron Jones, A.J. Dillon. I love A.J. Dillon at his prize. I love Aaron Jones. I'm not particularly bullish on the Packers as a whole. I have actually would take their under if I could. But I think that you're finding value here in a player where the field is kind of unsure about what he looks like right now just if Aaron Jones plays a full season. But I think A.J. Dillon has massive upside and there's room for him to improve. So keep that in mind. If there's two running backs that both project for volume, it doesn't mean they're both going to be bad or both meh. It could mean that one of them can outperform their ADP even without an injury. If you want to get more insights like that, you can get that in the Ultimate Draft Kit. And the Ultimate Draft Kit Plus includes our Best Ball Rankings and Best Ball Primer, which is updated weekly. I know that I looked at the Best Ball Primer today, and one of my main things that I've been realizing is that stacking teams like the Bills is really hard. It's really hard to pay up for Josh Allen knowing that Stephon Diggs is is the eighth overall pick. You can find certain metrics like our stackability metrics in the Ultimate Draft Kit. So go to ultimatedraftkit.com if you want to be a part of that. But let's talk about best ball. Best Ball Bonanza. So we're talking today, before we get in the mailbag, before we get into the meat of this episode, I want to just, can I vent a little bit about week 17? 
This is something in best ball that we've emphasized more and more. We brought up on the main show recently about correlating your week 17 players. When you're playing in a tournament like underdog, their best ball mania three, you're playing against a massive field. Or if you're playing on DraftKings, all right, they have the $5 Millie Maker tournament. The prize pool is $3.5 million. There's an insane over 800,000 people are playing in that. And to get to the final round, think about it this way. In DFS, if you win a GPP, you have to have a top 0.001% outcome. It's like you're beating a 12-man league and then you're playing three GPPs in a row. That's what we're essentially doing in best ball if you're playing in these big tournaments. And I talked to Betts about this, simply asking the question, when it comes to week 17 and correlating your players, is this overdone? I, I feel like my Twitter feed has been, I don't know, just overwhelmed with people talking about week 17 and the matchups and something we talked about on our show, so I don't want to take that away. But I think what Betts made a comment to me. He says, I do think that this has been a little bit overemphasized a bit. The field is trying to do this. Everyone's kind of understanding that last year, if you had Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow and you correlated them with Darrell Williams, you probably had a winning stack, but you actually had to get there. So what I want to focus on is some of the statistics that go around week 17, the prize pool, and then how to get unique. Because in a massive tournament like that, everybody in their mama is going to be stacking Broncos and Chiefs, right? Like you're going to have teams that have Kelsey and then they're stacking Russell Wilson with a couple of Broncos options. You're going to have people that are stacking Chargers and Rams or, you know, Bills and Bengals this year. Those are the teams that are popular. But I wanted to give you some info. This is from Spike Week's Eric Bimefor, used to be of Rotor Grinders. But here's how top heavy it is for week 17. Here's the data behind it. So only 470 teams make the final round. So 0.1% of the field gets there, okay? 10% of the prize pool in Best Ball Mania goes to the regular season scoring champion. So if you have the most points scored through those 14 weeks, congratulations, you won a GPP and you're well-deserving of it. But 30% of the prize pool goes to whoever finishes in the top two. 11% goes to who finishes in the top 100. And another 9% is if you finished in that final week in the top 470. To put that all together, 60% of the money in Underdog's Best Ball Mania goes to week 17 and the regular season champ. So you are trying to get a crazy outcome where this tournament is built so much for that final week, but you still have to make it through your 12-person league, right? You have to be in the top two of that 12-person league, which is you know the top 17%. And then you have week 15, 16, and 17. So taking that into account, week 17 and the way that you have your lineups, we don't just need teams that correlate. We need teams that correlate and that get us unique from the field. So I want to give you a couple of teams and a couple of players from these matchups that might allow you to get unique. It's just something that I think everybody knows they're stacking week 17. So how are you doing it in a way that the field isn't? So a game that's does not sound very sexy at all. Jacksonville Jaguars at the Houston Texans. There are so many cheap options. And like last year, if you find the right combination of Rashad Penny and Amon Ross St. Brown in that last game, it is massive. So if you got, let's say, Travis Etienne and then a John Mechie or a Nico Collins, you are giving yourself an opportunity where a lot of people aren't thinking, I need to add Texans to my roster. 
I think an underrated game on there is the 49ers at Las Vegas. There's lots of different options from that game. Dallas at Tennessee. I feel like Tennessee is kind of uh, a team that has a sour taste in most people's mouths. But Austin Hooper at the end of your draft. If you have Cowboys in the roster, grab Austin Hooper at the very end. It's a really cheap cheap way to get exposure. Uh, there's some other ones. Chicago at Detroit. Arizona at Atlanta. These games do not project to be high-scoring but neither did Detroit and Seattle this past year. So is week 17 important? It is massively important. But it can be overdone if you're doing what everyone else is doing. Then you're not really differentiating yourself from the field. All right, one more little takeaway I want to give, and then we'll get into the mailbag. I did some research recently about running backs and when to take them in your draft. It's super important that when you're drafting you're drafting as if your team is locked in and that your first two running backs are getting scores that actually matter in underdog you're starting two running backs and maybe another one in the flex so when teams start taking six or seven running backs you know you're not using three at least three of those scores every single week when you get up there so knowing that when do you start taking your third and your fourth and your fifth running backs If you take four running backs before round eight or nine, you are massively uh, missing out on what the field is doing. And you're massively missing out on what the average advance rate is. So the expectation for advancing in best ball is when you start taking your running back in the 12th round, you meet expectation, the 12th round. So imagine taking your fourth running back in rounds eight or nine, and you've missed out on the wide receivers that you need to actually get through in the tournament. The sweet spot that I found is teams that took their fourth running back in rounds 12, 13, 14, and 15 last year. Obviously, the data we have in front of us is telling us what happened last year. It's not going to be a copy and paste for this next year, right? Like, all the information from 2021 is not prescriptive of this is exactly what you should do. But it is clear that teams that waited to take this fourth running back actually performed way better. You want somebody with a window of opportunity, and there are players in that rounds right now that I love. So I'm going to give you a couple of names that if you're thinking, hey, I, I've, I have a couple of studs at the top of my draft. Let's say you've taken CMC and J.K. Dobbins. Those are your first two running backs. It's totally fine to grab another third running back, especially if they fall. I'm finding that Melvin Gordon, people just don't want to draft him. He's a great third running back you can take. But your fourth running back needs to be somebody with massive upside that you're not counting on their score. So players you can get in that range are Darrell Henderson of the Rams. Like There's an opportunity, if K-Makers goes down, that he's the dude, and we know that Sean McVay loves using one running backs in his system. The rookie for San Francisco, Terrian Davis-Price, is somebody that is going late enough in drafts. Who knows what he's going to be at the very beginning of the year, But it's totally possible that come second half of the season, he's one of those guys that Kyle Shanahan uses. Khalil Herbert is a running back that I love drafting from the Bears. The Bears exclusively use one running back. And if David Montgomery went down, which he's done the last two years, Khalil Herbert's in a great situation. And last one that's been rising up draft boards is Daryl Williams, now of the Cardinals. He was a best ball league winner this past year. And I think he's still a good value on the Cardinals if you want to get him in around the 13th or 14th round. These are the running backs that you get to take in the fourth as your fourth running back. 
And I think that when you structure your team that way, you'll be strong enough at wide receiver. Hopefully you've grabbed an elite tight end and you set yourself up super well for the future. All right, let's get into mailbag. Mailbag. So these mailbag questions came from you on our Fantasy Footballers Discord channel. You can join that at jointhefoot.com. I give special privilege to those people because they're awesome. They're fun. I have some questions from Twitter as well. Feel free to ask those if you want to ask me at Kyle underscore Borg. But with this mailbag, I'm going to kind of blend mostly best ball. I'll also add in some that are more just personal AMA type questions. But let's start off with this one off Discord, Wizard of Waz 66. If you take an early quarterback or tight end, how long should you wait to take a second? Thanks. So taking early quarterback is something that I struggle with because we also have to understand we're taking them at their ADP. So there's an opportunity cost of taking Patrick Mahomes in the third round or the fourth round, wherever he is. I have taken Mahomes when he slipped to the fifth, but an early quarterback is only somebody I want to take if I think they can be top three no matter what. If they fall a little bit in ADP, and there's stacking options that I really like. So the three that fit that criteria that I really like this year, it's Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert. Now, those names aren't too crazy, but based on their ADP, based on their stacking options, I'm fine with it. But when you take the second one, if you take one of those elite, there's not a hard rule, but I could not imagine taking a player before round 10, another quarterback. Because what you're counting on with Josh Allen is for him to repeat as the quarterback one, or at least the quarterback two. With Lamar Jackson, you are hoping for elite rushing totals. You're hoping he plays a full season. And Justin Herbert, you're hoping that he continues on his trajectory. You know, two years in, he's basically on the Hall of Fame train. But you're hoping that his stacking options actually pay off for him. So if you're taking another quarterback in, let's say, round six, seven, eight, nine, wherever, you are saying that those are your two, that's it, and that the pairing of those two are needed for you. I just don't like taking a quarterback so early and not assuming that they're going to be elite, right? And now if there's value, let's say if there's somebody, you know, if Jalen Hurts somehow fell, and people love Jalen Hurts, if he fell, I would be open to that because of was rushing upside. If Tom Brady fell to the ninth round, I would totally love doing that. So I'm not going to give a hard rule, but I would say I find when I take teams like that, Lamar Jackson, I will pair him with a quarterback that I can get rounds 10, 11, 12. You know, I, I, Matt Ryan, Derek Carr, na- names that are steady and hopefully can give you four to five games that are usable. I had a draft recently where Matthew Stafford, apparently no one was taking him, and I took him in the 11th round. It was not my plan. I had no other Rams, but there was value. So I would say the, the, the round maybe isn't the best, but the value is what you're looking for to pair those elite quarterbacks with. And then with tight end, you know, the the tight ends that I'll mention, Kelsey, Andrews, Pitts, if you're getting an elite tight end, you are paying up for it. You're saying that those, one of those three guys is going to be a top two tight end. Like they have to be. You probably don't need a tight end until later, you know, round 15 plus, like you're, you're not asking for the scores from the other guys. If you're taking elite tight ends, you're hoping they're healthy you're not having the same exact bye weeks, but you're getting, you know, an Austin Hooper type. You're getting Noah Fant, 
maybe Hayden Hurst. You're getting somebody later that you know is a starting tight end. Drafting two tight ends is kind of like the in vogue thing. If you have an elite one, like, oh, I only need one more. It's not the worst idea, though, when you get to your very last pick. If there's a starting tight end on the board and you want to add some Week 17 correlation, grab somebody that actually is going to play. There are so many wide receivers at the very end of the draft that might not even make the team. You know, like undrafted free agents or guys that are the fourth or fifth option. You know, grabbing somebody like Brevin Jordan of the Texans that you can correlate with your Jaguars is probably a better choice. So don't shy away from three tight ends, but if you're getting an elite one, I will probably wait till rounds 14 or 15. All right, next question is from Tyler Turner. Which one do you prefer, 110 degrees dry Phoenix heat or 95 degrees Atlanta humid heat? <sighs> All right, so I'm only six months in here in Phoenix, so I'm I'm a bit of a noob. I won't begin to say that I understand how climate works at all or how this state functions at all. I, I know where to go. I know how to get to work. Uh, but this past week, I feel like was a wake-up call of what life is like. And the biggest thing for me is that when it hits midday, like no one goes outside. Like I, I go by the park near my house. Like there are no kids playing because they will die. <laughs> we don't want kids to die. So the 110 degree heat is just, there's an oven door open and it stays open all day. And I'm still getting used to, it. I'm still getting used to the fact that when I go to bed at night, it's still hundred degrees outside. Like that's still insane to me. Uh, even though the sun's down, it's like, Oh, it's 102. How is that possible? Now, the 95-degree Atlanta humid heat, it, it's gross. Like, growing up in the South, I lived there almost 35 years. It is a gross, sticky, you know, you walk outside, sweat is a given. And spending a couple summers in college, like in South Georgia, like there are parts of Georgia that are just, oh, they're, they're gross. But I think I've built up enough immunity to know that I can survive that. I don't know if I can survive this and I I don't know if my kids can. So I will take the 95 degree Atlanta humid heat. There's a part of living that's just like, I don't mind sweating, uh, especially if I'm doing outdoor work. I can't do outdoor work here. Uh, I can't even mow my lawn, which you guys have already made fun of a ton. Uh, It's just not part of the cards. All right, before we get into some more questions, let's take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, 
there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, we're back. Next one is for Vincent Vega. He said, what's your take on a three-person draft in Underdog? Do you draft differently than a 12-person draft? Thanks. Enjoying the pod. Thanks, Vincent. So a three-person draft in Underdog, you can look at it a couple different ways. Obviously, you're still drafting on points. You're still going to have the same roster construction and at the end of the day where you know, you, you're going to play one quarterback. You're only playing two running backs. You're playing three wide receivers. It's not like because there's three people, your points are, are optimally given different. But I like to personally, you know, box people out. Like, think about this. You get to use wherever you are in the draft and use kind of the theory and the strategy to box people out of certain positions. Tight end's the easiest one that comes to mind where I do not mind taking Andrews and Kelsey in the first, second round. Like, let's say you have the third overall pick. People take Jonathan Taylor. They take CMC. You're on the board. I don't think it's the worst thing if you find yourself getting value too, to take both those tight ends and then dare somebody else to make it up and get the other tight end position. You then don't even have to look at tight end the rest of the time and you're set. However, you will have to sacrifice certain other positions. I think at quarterback, get one of the elites that I mentioned and then wait. So if you got Andrews, you know, get Lamar Jackson when he falls. With wide receiver, you can make it up. I get that if you took tight end early, you don't have a Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase on your team, but drop down a little further, you can get you know Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs easily on your team. So you can make up the wide receiver. At running back, it can be very tempting in the three-person draft to say, you know what? I'm going to get eight of these stud running backs. Like If everyone else is going this other direction, you know the the bully tight end, if they're just trying to trying to take that, then I'm going to get eight stud running backs. I'm going to get eight of the top 12 running backs. Remember, you're only starting two running backs and maybe another one as a potential flex. So I would personally not go above five or six running backs in that format because everybody has studs. You know, everyone is going to have players that are elite. Like, think about this. There's going to be running backs that you would consider a top 20 running back that will not be drafted in a three-man league. Okay? So... Be willing to draft elite players like, you know, get your Dalvin Cook, get your Najee Harris, get your Alvin Kamara, get a stud and know that you're probably going to have three or four more really good players. But this is about you having positional advantages and having the stacks that allow you just to go off. So some people will approach this and say, hey, I'm going to go for Russell Wilson and, and get two chargers on my team. You can totally do that. You have to buy into certain offenses. There's also a chance if that team busts that week that you're kind of let down. So in a three-person draft, I like to bully tight end. I would say take a little bit less running backs, maybe five or six. Five is probably my sweet spot. And then, yeah, wide receiver, it's so deep that 
everybody's going to be taking really good guys. There's going to be guys that they're in like, oh my gosh, he wasn't drafted. Uh, don't feel bad about that. Next one's from Hypnotoad. Nice name. On Discord, he posted a picture of him riding his new lawnmower. Congrats, dude. That's the life. Asked, is it necessary to max enter the best ball tournaments on DraftKings? And a similar question, EV, or EVPH sorry, uh, on Discord also said, how many entries are you doing in these large field tourneys this year? So for DFS, we usually preach that if you're going to enter a massive tournament, you should max enter it. In other words, if it has 150 entries, you should be willing to go all the way and pay up because you know there are people that are going to do it. You know there's people that even in the dollar entries are paying $150 and they have a much better chance than you in your $5 entries. A lot of people don't have the bankroll to do that. So in DFS, we often say, hey, find the 20 max um, find the tournaments that you can try out 150 max, uh, you know, that are dollar entry or quarter entry or whatever it is in best ball. The entry fees are a little bit more. So the puppy, which just filled on underdog is $5 and the best ball mania. The one that we talk about a lot is $25. I'm assuming that you do not have the bankroll. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're, maybe you're living large to max enter the best ball mania at $25, uh, 150 entries. Like maybe that's just not where you're at. That's okay, but know that you need enough entries to actually have some skin in the game. So the puppy just filled up and I only got in 20 entries. So, you know, 20 times five is only a hundred dollars that I entered in. I think that's okay. It's not ultimately what I want. And they'll up open other tournaments just like that, that are at that price point, the puppy two, puppy three, on DraftKings, I don't play as much because of the interface, but I do think that if you have the bankroll and you're playing in a massive tournament like that, then yes, max entering is kind of what you need to do. But realize that throughout the summer, you're going to have different approaches. A lot of people call this, uh, Michael Leone calls it this, of uh, established to run the barbell approach of starting the year with a ton of different entries and then kind of waiting to see how the ADP and how injuries unfold and then drafting more at the end where at the end of the summer, you know, August before the, the season starts, you're also going to get a lot of new people that are excited about best ball. And yes, it's okay to take their money. All right. You don't have to feel so bad. You're playing in a tournament, but things change over the summer. So a lot of teams that you drafted a month ago might be dead at this point in August, right? Last year, I remember having a team where I was like, you know what? I'm going to get different. I'm going to take Cam Akers, you know, at the end of the first round. And that's where his ADP was. He was about, you know, a top 15 pick. Of course, Cam Akers gets hurt. And everybody that had Darrell Henderson was jumping for joy for having him. And yet, you need to be able to adjust. And so I would say in these tournaments, know that they're probably going to fill. Know that there's a strategy of when you get to July, things slow down a lot in NFL news that you can wait and then in August is where I'll start kicking you back up. It doesn't mean you don't do a slow draft here and there, but take that approach. So for me, I personally don't have the bankroll to throw down $1,000 on best ball, but I do think that there's a way for me to uh, play in certain tournaments that I think I can return value. I play in the 12-man tournaments, and then Betts and I, we go into the big dog tournament, which won't open until later this summer, it was $250 entry, and that's a really fun one. If you want that big feel of a tournament 
and you feel like, hey, I can't max center a ton, I can split that with someone else. So that's that was a really fun tournament to be able to do last year. Next one is from Steve12768. <clears throat> Steve, I like the number, buddy. I guess all the other ones were taken. All right, Steve, you asked, so Jalen Hurts is generally ranked higher than Derek Carr, but who is more likely to have more spike weeks? This is one of my favorite questions this week because it made me think. The quick answer I think everybody would say is, of course, it's Jalen Hurts, right? Jalen Hurts is being taken at QB6. His ADP is 63 and a half, and Derek Carr is a little bit further down. QB14 is going past pick 100. But the question is asking about spike weeks. And spike weeks is what we care about in best ball. We care about that because we want scores that are going to differentiate ourselves. And if we have quarterbacks, we have stacks that can do that, then we're just getting higher weekly outputs. So which of these quarterbacks would we say has a better chance of spike weeks? Going back to last year, Jalen Hurts was one of the most consistent quarterbacks in our metrics, and he had five weeks of 25-plus fantasy points. That's what I'm calling a spike week, 25-plus fantasy points. In underdog, it uses four points per passing touchdown. That is a key point because if you look in our projections in the Ultimate Draft Kit, if you change the scoring from four point per passing to six point, it massively changes who is at the top. Do that. I'll give you a challenge. Do that with Jalen Hurts. If you change the scoring for Jalen Hurts, he jumps for some people's projections from a top eight quarterback to a top two or top three. So it's a big deal. An underdog, it's only four points per passing touchdown. So while Hertz had five weeks, five spike weeks last year, Derek Carr, despite having over 4,800 passing yards, had zero spike week games. Zero games over 25 plus fantasy points. Derek Carr had as many three touchdown games this past year as Mike Glennon, a.k.a. he had zero. So what we care about between these two is who's going to give us those games that really matter. In his career, Derek Carr, only 7% of his games have been spike weeks, while Jalen Hurts, who's only played a year and four games, has 32%. So based on the data in the past, it's pretty clear Jalen Hurts is going to give you the spike weeks you want. Yes, Derek Carr just added Devontae Adams, and I think he will have more this year. I mean, 4,800 passing yards is massive. Over the last five years, there's been 11 quarterbacks who have done that. Their average was 36 passing touchdowns. Carr only had 23. So I think he has room for major touchdown improvement. Today, I was thinking about him as the West Coast version of Matt Ryan. You get tons of yardage, and the touchdowns might not happen. So I like Derek Carr, and I really like him at his ADP. But Jalen Hurts is going to give you far more spike games because rushing really matters in four-point passing touchdown leagues. It's just, it's a true differentiator. Derek Carr this year needs to throw at least 35 passing touchdowns to even get close to being a top 12 quarterback. Jalen Hurts was a top 10 quarterback last year and threw only 16 touch, touchdowns. It's, it's massively important. Next question is from Ken E. Kawabunguchi. I think that's a Kenny Kawaguchi reference. Here we go. What's one thing you're proud of slash one thing you regret in your 20s? Wow. Uh, let's go deep. Why not? Uh, one thing I'm proud of, probably getting married. Uh, that was a big step. And getting to live near my parents and getting to do life with uh, with my siblings. So uh, super proud of that. Super proud of uh, a lot of things I got to do, a lot of friends. And I think I'm proud of 
somehow stumbling into fantasy football world just on a whim, uh, just on like a hobby. And then I would say one thing I regret in my 20s, I think a lot of people are like this, so hopefully it's not just me, but uh, it's really easy when you're younger to be pretty dogmatic about things like this, the way things are kind of black and white thinking. And I wouldn't say I'm a gray person, like I have convictions, but I would say it's really easy in your 20s to kind of say this is how it is and not have the nuance and understanding what it is. So yeah, I would say in your 20s, it's a great question, but learning how to understand and have compassion for other perspectives is a big deal while still holding to your convictions. Next one is from Alex Vanderplog. Do you and Betts have any players that feel like they'll be my guys for best ball or for redraft. We've mentioned Aaron Jones a lot. I don't think I can mention him anymore, but he's on the short list. And then right now, my highest exposure players in best ball are Chris Olave, rookie wide receiver for the Saints, and Devin Duvernay, wide receiver for the Ravens. I'm pretty sure Olave is going to finish this best ball season as, as my highest roster player. It shocks me that his ADP is just still hanging so low. He's just chilling behind a lot of other options. Uh, He's going at 99th overall. He's actually dropped in ADP, which doesn't make sense to me given all this Michael Thomas news. So give me Chris Olave over these players going ahead of him. Christian Kirk. Yeah, no thanks. Uh, Brandon Ayuk. DeAndre Hopkins, who's going to be out at least seven weeks. I'd take him over Traylon Burks. I'd take him over Sky Moore. I'd even take him over Kadarius Toney. So, Chris Olave probably will be my favorite player. Is he a my guy? That is a tough question. So every year, we, our writers get to pick one, and the guys get to pick three for the main show, but uh, I got two last year record, and George Kittle was my my guy I got to give on the episode. It's really hard with the my guy because you in best ball, you're saying they're going to be a massive win rate player. And my players last year was between Michael Pittman Jr. George Kittle. Michael Pittman was a massive win rate player. George Kittle, not so much. Got injured. So that's kind of my thinking. You know, in redraft, Aaron Jones is going to be awesome, but his ADP is creeping up where now, like, the cat's out of the bag. So right now, if if you had to ask me who's my my guy, I think it's Chris Olave. And I think I just want to get ahead of that for many Michael Thomas-related news. But that's where I'm at. All right, next one is from Wet kilts i'd love to know the strategy for when you get stuck in the middle of the draft that sixth seventh or eighth pick i will say that i've been in a couple drafts recently where i've gotten the eighth pick and it is so frustrating it is so frustrating because when you look at the draft and you start queuing it up you start realizing in the first round i know i'm not going to get the elite two running backs jonathan taylor and christian mccaffrey I know that Cooper Cup, Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase are going to be gone. And then in most drafts, Austin Eckler and Derrick Henry are gone too. So you're staring in the middle of the draft. Who's going to be your choice? Are you going to take Stephon Diggs, Devontae Adams? Are you going to take Travis Kelsey? Or are you going to go at this next spot with the next running back available? It is, it is one of the hardest spots because you need somebody in that spot to be a differentiator. But... A lot of projections don't have Najee Harris, we're a little bit lower, or Dalvin Cook being anywhere close to the other running backs. So in a tournament, you're saying, I need these guys 
to live up to their draft cost, and I need the players ahead of them to fail, which right now it's impossible apart from injury to see that with the wide receivers. I've also found in those middle rounds that you have a harder time stacking. People pick you off easily for some of your stacks. You feel like you have to reach. I like the security of when you're at the turn, you get to make the back-to-back picks and you're not really worried about somebody getting sniped because you know that there's so many picks in between you. In the middle, I feel like I'm sniped all the time. So for me, the big, the best strategy is I need to be more loose with how I think about my stacking options. I need to be able to find that there are players in tiers rather than in the middle saying, hey, I need to have this player and this player alone. You know, like if you're looking at tight end, if you're like, ah, uh, I have to have Dawson Knox. Well, you know, right below him, there's Rob Gronkowski, there's Mike Gesicki, there's Robert Tanya. Like you need to be able to have multiple options in the middle. But yes, I would say it's my least favorite spot to be in a best ball draft. Next question from Jeff Greenwood, one of our writers that we often refer to as P-Pants. He asked, how many NFL quarterbacks can throw a Frisbee further than you? Now, I'm going to take this question and take it from an ultimate Frisbee, ultimate perspective, because disc golf, I can throw much further. It's a harder disc. But little insight here, I was captain, toot toot, of our ultimate Frisbee team in college and won a couple of intramural championships, uh, including one that was a co-ed A-league that I am very proud of. Uh, so, yeah, I play a lot of Frisbee, a lot of ultimate Frisbee in college. So the question is, who in the NFL doesn't have what it takes? I would say with Frisbee, all of the quarterbacks in the NFL clearly have, you know, <laughs> they have the strength to throw it further than me. That's not a question. The question is the form, and who do I think would look goofy out there? So uh, I would say that Daniel Jones is already a goofy human being when he runs, so I think I can outdo him. Tua doesn't look like somebody who could throw a Frisbee with much oomph. Um, there was a time in college where when I was the person in charge of throwing off that, you know, I could throw it 75 plus yards if I really got it. I don't, I can't get anywhere close to that anymore, but who could throw it that far a Frisbee? I mean, Josh Allen could probably throw it out of the stadium I, I, if he got the right form. But the question is asking if there's no warmups, who would just throw it? You know what? I'm going to say this. Tom Brady is good at everything in life. I feel like there could be one thing that I could be better at him at. So I'm going to put it out there that Tom Brady cannot throw a Frisbee very far. And maybe I'll get destroyed for it. But I just need this one thing over him. Okay? All right, a couple more questions and then we'll get out of here. This one's from Brandon Brown. Asks, how far is it acceptable to reach for your stack? Is it a few picks within the same round or a full round? And then I'll ask a follow-up question on stacking in just a second. But we've found that reaching anywhere above 15 picks is not helpful at all to reach for your stack. You know, when you start doing that, you are essentially telling the field that they can scoop up the value of the players in front of you. So, yeah, I would say anything more than 12 picks is not something I usually do. I'd rather have the stacks fall to me. And clearly people can see that. Like, people can see in the draft, like, oh, they're trying to stack uh, Broncos, and I need to do that. And if you're one of those people that's thinking, hey, I I see that this is happening. Maybe I should take their quarterback. I love to comment from our Discord channel. I want to throw this out there from Terrace in our Discord channel. It says, I don't know who needs to hear this, 
But in a large best ball tournament, intentionally sniping other people's drafters in the room with their stacks is not a strategy that yields trends. And I just love that comment because it's so true. When you see a stack unfold in a normal draft, in a redraft league, you're like, ooh, I'm going to I'm gonna take it to this person because I know them and I don't want them to get this person. In best ball, there is no recovery, right? There's no waivers for you to be able to adjust later. You're stuck with that pick. So don't try to take someone else's stack. They won't all work out the way that we want. A full round is okay, but I like to be somewhere 10 or fewer is, uh, is where I like to be. You can also tell if there's a couple quarterbacks in front of you, you can wait on that stack. And if you miss out on the stack, that's okay. There's multiple options later. We're not trying to game stack this fully like DFS. We're trying to get optimal outcomes and trying to find offenses to buy into. All right, so follow-up question here from Jake Christ, who's one of our mods on Discord. He asked, what are some stacks you would love to have, but the ADP of one or both of the players make it almost impossible? How do you feel about the Cup Stafford stack and why? So I'll start off with that one. Here's the thing. The Cup Stafford stack is not one that I have a ton of because Cup's ADP is so high you really have to be able to, you know, you have to be able to pay up for him and then wait a long time. But I love having Stafford be in the 10th round. It's very easy to do, and I'm all about it. I just have Justin Jefferson higher in my ranks in terms of the outcomes, in terms of what I like paying for, what I like getting with Kirk Cousins. And you're not asking Cooper Cup to have a historical season. Love Cooper Cup. He's going to be good. He's going to be safe. So I think that stack's fine. I just don't have a ton of Cooper Cup. The other stacks that I don't have a ton of, Stephon Diggs, Josh Allen, you're basically taking Diggs in the first and Allen in the second. That's too rich. Mahomes and Kelsey, you're taking Kelsey in the first, Mahomes probably in the third. There's just lots of room for regression. Jason is giving a take on Mahomes as a bust at his ADP, and I wholeheartedly endorse it. He's going to be a great quarterback, but great for fantasy is a different question. Kyler Murray and Hollywood Brown is one you have to take basically at the 4-5 turn. And I don't know what this offense is going to be without DeAndre Hopkins. And the last one I'll say is A.J. Brown. A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts is a late second-round pick and a fifth-sixth-round pick because everybody loves them. In a massive tournament, because the Eagles are getting so popular, it's really easy to go in other directions. I don't mind getting Hurts. And then pairing him with the other options, Miles Sanders, Devonta Smith, Dallas Goddard. I think that's a fine strategy. But A.J. Brown is somebody that I will be much, much lower on than the consensus. Next week, we will be talking about best ball stacking and giving some of those strategies. We're calling it best ball stacking like a champ. Last year, I think I called it stacking like a boss. So yeah, next week, we'll get more into that. Hope you guys have a great weekend. And Mo that lawn. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fantasy Footballers DFS Podcast. Don't forget to visit us on the web at www.thefantasyfootballers.com.